Hey folks, welcome back to the DC3 cast. My name is Brian. With me, as always, are my pals, Zach and Vince. And we are here to talk about the DC Comics released on the 21st of August, 2019. We are going to, after the show, I have to say, based on truly an outpouring of people on Twitter asking me, we are going to talk about uh, House of X and Powers of Ten today. We got at least five tweets or emails about people wanting us to talk about this. So that's a good thing, I guess, for five of you. Um. (laughs) (laughs) It's not very true to our brand, but, you know. No, it's not. And We we, uh, we give the people what they want. Yeah, exactly. We we do what we can. So let's dig in to Aquaman number 51, written by Kelly Sudakonik. Illustrated by Robson Roca. Right? He's still on the book, right? I didn't look that up, but I'm just presuming he's still yeah. on the book. Yeah. That is yep. right. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so this is one of the myriad titles that features uh, it's, it's supposedly a uh, Year of the Villain tie in, yet only at the very end of the issue do we get anything involving the Year of the Villain. Well, so I think I've been noticing that as a trend, and I think that is now. I think that's what it's supposed to be now, which yeah, it's sucks. not <laughs> right. It's 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 not like explicitly. Now it's that like all the villains are out doing their thing. It's not. It's no longer like the gift stuff. It's what what are they calling it? Is it dark gifts? Now it's dark gifts. Now it's meaning, dark gifts. Yeah. Yeah. Meaning meaning the offer is what I meant. Did I say the gift? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I meant I meant the offer. You meant the now Sam it, Raimi movie The Gift. Yeah, absolutely. Yep. No, now it's now it's Dark Gifts, which is just all the villains are out doing their shit. Yeah. And they just which, put they put the banner on it to to make it see, you know, to sell more copies Right. Sense of, yeah. Right, right. But it it seems like I mean, I guess I'm only basing this on two books, this one and <laughs> Tech, but both of those the last couple issues have had stingers at the end with their villain um sure so it's almost sure. like they're it's not it's like a b plot thing that's going through right, this right. Year. Yeah. A, a backup even even <laughs> a backup even uh back up on our bullshit okay <laughs> so let's talk about this issue uh first of all we get we get the most Jackson high we've got in quite some time here. Um, he, wonderful. Uh, huh? Wonderful. Yes. He's wonderful. He's very good. Uh, we also get like even more of Deconic and Roka leaning into the Jason Momoa Aquaman stuff. <laughs> like he's at one point uh, they're on like a, the face of a cliff and uh, Jackson's like, what are we doing? And he turns, Aquaman turns around, gives the devil horns, and says, "Road will only take you so far, kid," which is something that, again, I hate to keep being the continuity police, would have never happened in any Aquaman comic ever until this run. And you know what? That's why this is good. Sure. Yes. I I, I won't right. say I won't say that's good, but this comic is good. No, it's good. <laughs> that's I good, wanted, and this comic's good. I I want him to just yeah, like. I, I just want Aquaman to yell on every page. Like, I just want to just, oh, yeah, every page, every page. 
You mean like uh, you mean like Jackson does on the very next page where he yells "yeah" and and he's he's just showing us the 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 biggest best nut face I've ever seen. Uh, yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He looks yeah. he's nutting all the way down. <laughs> yep. Oh yeah. Splash. Um. I I want Kelly Sue to just double down on this so hard. Yeah. The bro stuff, you mean? The bro stuff, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yep. What do you guys think of the Demira Volko stuff right now? Um, <laughs> I mean, I chuckled at some of that stuff. It's they're clearly not they're clearly not taking it anywhere, you know, serious or problematic or anything. No, uh, I think they're taking it like in a good place. Yeah. Um uh, this is good stuff because it is building off of Abnett's run in a really meaningful way with kind of the, the uh, I guess, like socio-political aspect of her her, her position and, and helping out the, the Ninth Tried and also stalling this wedding. I, I actually think that this is my favorite part of the issue. Yeah, it's 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 really good. Um, yeah, it's really. Um, I mean, it's got everything. It's 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 got the Atlantean drama that you want. It's got a little bit of humor, like you said. It's continuing on plot threads from the post rebirth Aquaman sort of thing. Yeah, this is just a really solid issue. Um, and, you know, I don't know if this is as pretty as uh, Robson Roca's, like, the His previous work. Yeah, the previous uh, Aquaman arc that he did, like Kelly Sue's first arc on this. But there are some really pretty moments. And I think the, the coloring, who does the coloring on this? Um, I can tell you right now. It's really vivid. There's There's a lot of nice, like, sunset stuff. Um, I'm thinking about towards the end of the issue when they're they're setting up the fire and they're they're going to gather around the fire and the sun's going down, and the color palette kind of changes to adjust to that. Oh, it's sunny go. Yeah, oh. sunny go. Well, there you go. Um, really, really nice stuff. Really like create makes uh, Amnesty Bay into like a really pretty, prettier than normal. Uh, location i also like how this issue is starting to like you guys said it's starting to build off some of the abnet stuff but it's also not totally eschewing the first kelly sue arc mm-hmm. that that arc felt very insular and very um sort of detached from everything else and this arc is doing a nice job in carrying on the abnet stuff bringing those characters into the book and introducing Aqualad. There's a lot going on in this arc. Uh-huh. Yeah. And that's not to mention the Year of the Villain stuff. Yeah, which which <laughs> is fantastic. It's it's over the top in like the best way. Um Yeah. Do we want to talk about that? Sure, go for it. <laughs> so uh Lex has apparently created a Mecha Manta imbued with black mantis father's dna 
uh, mixed with artificial intelligence. It's basically like, I, this is this is going to be an esoteric reference for you guys, I think, but it's it's Neon Genesis Evangelion, basically. Now <laughs> I'm yes, that's what I was thinking too. <laughs> um, of course. On, honestly, this feels like a very uh, Scott Snyder idea. Like I feel like Snyder watched evangelion and then was like kelly sue i got this idea for aquaman it's so cool (laughs) just very excited um not that kelly sue couldn't have come up with this but like tying this into the justice league stuff this this feels part and parcel with all of that you know it's just it's so bombastic and out outrageous and and huge and yeah, it, 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 it's it's wild. It's yeah. wild. I have I, to say, go for it, bud. I was just gonna say, uh, you know, when when we saw the offers, I think some of the stuff that I said about that was, oh, all these villains are just being given like the obvious pitch from Lex. But I think in practice, so far, and granted, you know, there's a lot more to go in this storyline. But so far, I think they've been exceeding my expectations as to what they actually end up with. I'm thinking about, like, the Sinestro Year of the Villain one-shot issue and and now this issue have both done things for their villain of focus that went above and beyond what I would have expected. The, the writers could have easily churned out a much more generic version of whatever their gift was going to be, sure. you know? Um yeah. Anyway, what were you gonna say, Brian? Um, I can't remember now. Oh, sorry. That's I'm okay. an asshole. No, it could have been that important. Uh, but yeah, I thought this overall that this was this was fun. I think that uh, doing a giant mech Black Manta feels somewhat natural for the DC universe. Like it feels like it's a logical extension of an idea, which is amazing that it even that we can even say that. But it seems like this is the villain that would want the giant mech version of himself. And that's cool. So, with, yeah. it, with his dad, with his yes, dad, with his dad inside of it. Yeah. Um. You think this was a fucking uh, what's his name? Comic all these daddy issues. <laughs> oh jeez, Rick Remender. Yes, Rick Remender. Thank you. Uh, direct all your mail to Brian at hey, multiversitycomics.com. That is that is indeed my email. Send me some fun stuff. Uh, so let's talk about Batman seventy seven because we must. Written by Tom King, illustrated by Michael Janin and uh, Tony S. Daniel. Um, Vince, you said you weren't going to tip your hand in your uh, text to me about this. Mm-hmm. So tip it, baby. Tell us what you think of this issue. Oh boy, you guys. I kind of like it. Fuck you. <laughs> oh wow. <laughs> Whoa, no. <laughs> Sorry guys, he's he's trying to remove it, but <laughs> yeah. Can I tell you okay. the two things I liked about this issue first? Yeah, yep, yep, absolutely. So the the first story page we get is Damien on a rooftop and Gotham Girl behind him says, Oh, hey. I read that in the voice of uh Jason Schwartzman from Scott Pilgrim versus the World when he's fighting <laughs> with Scott. He's like, Oh, hey. Or whatever, like that's that 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 was good. That's that's objectively good. Um, and then I liked the idea of Robin having the um, the wand, wand of Clarion. Clarion. 
Yes. That's like yes. A, a that's a Teen Titans villain. That's a very Damien thing. That that is that is that is good. Everything else in this issue is garbage. Ah, uh, Zach, why don't you? Uh... uh, well, so so Gotham Girl is really really annoying still. Yep. Um, just way way too much dialogue. Um, that is annoying. I I will say yeah. The, the Clarion moment and really everything with Damien was good. And I would, did want to say that I think last issue, we all kind of had an issue with kind of how flippant Damien was with the whole um, ultimatum about not going to Gotham and, and kind of the threat against Alfred. But I feel like this issue did a really good job of casting a light on that as not like Damien really being flippant or not not really caring but just so much kind of like youthful hubris i guess mm-hmm. you know he generally he genuinely believes that he can do this that he yep. can fix everything you know he he just believes that everything's going to be okay ultimately he's, he's like jack from lost am i right jack yeah yeah he kind of is yeah <laughs> um and so I, I thought everything with him was great. I thought the moment between him and Thomas was fantastic. Um, where he just kind of dressed him down, Damien to, to Thomas. And I thought all of that was handled really well. And I even actually think the moment with Alfred was kind of well earned, I guess. Okay, you so know? you agree with me. This This is great. Yeah, yeah. I think that that all was handled really well. Um, I think the stuff with Bruce and Selena was not the worst thing in the issue, but uh, I it's it's pretty bad. It was it's it, pretty bad. It was a little overwritten and and over, yeah. I have yeah. I have one very specific note about that, which is well, let me, let me start with the general thing. First of all, why is Tom King ripping off The Dark Knight Rises? Be, uh, well, I'm gonna address that, but um, it's it's to it's to it's to draw that parallel between like this is Bruce's chance to to leave it all behind if he wanted. Sure, you know? the difference is that he's supposed to be writing a comic and not ripping off a movie. But... Well, you're right, but but comics allude one; they make allusions to one another all the time. You know, and 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 movies and everything. You know, I actually like that as a as a parallel. I don't think he, I I, th- I don't think he's ripping it off. I think that's an intentional illusion he's making. Oh, I, I don't think I, it's unintentional. I just think it's hacky as fuck. Okay, all right. Uh, but I have to say, and I, I said this to you in a text, Vince, which is that the way that Bruce says, "But at least I'll die in Gotham." Like mother, yeah. like father, it will be ellipses, a good death. Is like exactly how we would have jokingly written that dialogue. Jumping out the window. <laughs> uh, it's the dialogue of this issue is really bad. Uh, yeah. Even the Damien, even the Damien Thomas stuff. Even if I liked some of the, uh, I like some of the sentiment there. I think it's a poorly scripted scene. 
Some of it is, yeah. There, maybe, yeah. yeah. I, I, I enjoyed most of it. I think, um, as always, like, as I praise this issue and this arc in particular, my story remains the same. That like, there is the typical Tom King bullshit. There is the bad dialogue. Um, there is like the weird disjointed sense of time and place uh that that all still exists in some of this um but i think i think in contrast like okay the problem that we all had with heroes in crisis and what it did to wally a lot of people are going to draw comparisons between that and what happens to alfred here and I think there's something to be said, you know, between Wally, what he did to Dick or Rick Grayson, uh, what he did to Alfred. You know, there there's something to be said that Tom, maybe Tom King doesn't know how to tell a story without taking a wrecking ball to a character, you know? It's almost I, like being part of the military-industrial complex can fuck with your head. <laughs> Wow, we'll we'll read we'll read Superman later. <laughs> okay, um, but I think the I think the 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 Wally stuff we've we've been over, you know, endlessly about why that comic sucked, and we've talked about why Dick, you know, by the end of that issue, especially that where Dick gets shot in the head. You actually wanted him to be shot in the head because the character was being written so poorly. But I think if I'm being honest with myself and if I'm isolating this comic, the Alfred stuff is earned. And, and you know, how we've seen we haven't seen much of Alfred in this arc. Or I mean, in this in this uh, in, the, in Tom King's run, I should say. Um, but what little we have seen fits with what we see here and kind of his arc since the beginning of this arc began kind of being under Thomas's thumb and what ultimately ends up happening to him, you know, the, the whole time he's thinking, you know, no, Bruce will be back and he's going to make you pay for all of this, you know, and then it doesn't happen. It's the same with, with Damien's hubris because like, as you said, Zach, because in Batman comics, they just expect that, that, I mean, Damien said it last issue where like, since when do we, listen to or believe what a villain says about what's going to happen, you know? Mm. And he's right. I think that part, I think the part about where Damien says it's not, Alfred is not my problem is a bad line and bad characterization. But I think this idea that these heroes are going to be confident that nothing's going to happen because they are who they are is a solid idea and, and something that is fitting for Damien's character. And, every once in a while you can subvert that. And I think that works here with Alfred. And I think, I think if Alfred were the only death that Tom King had in his hands, people wouldn't nearly have as big a problem with him, but this is going to, this is going to happen Wednesday and people are going to freak out. And I can't, you know, I, I'm not going to say I'm hundred percent right, but, but I do think like compared to the other two cases we've talked about, this is handled so much better and is so much more earned and if this is like the emotional fulcrum point of King's bat arc or, or for, you know, well, maybe Selena leaving him is, but you know, if it's one of the major emotional fulcrum points, 
I think that's pretty well earned uh, in what's otherwise been a lackluster run. Um, I think, you know, if you're going to do another story where Bane breaks the bat, I think by having him actually kill Alfred. Well, let's uh, pump the brakes there, cowboy. Do we think Alfred's <laughs> actually dead? I mean, do you think that's the thing? The thing being the thing that that is going to resonate for like ever. The thing that yeah for the next generation, whatever. Yeah. So, Vince, finish your kind of finish your point before I I go off. Sure. Uh, I don't even remember where I was going with that. I'm sorry, buddy. No, that's okay. That's all right. Um, but. Uh, blah, blah, blah. Oh, oh, yeah. If you're going to do a remake of, you know, Bane breaking the bat, this is a, this is a, an interesting twist to that, I think. Um, because I think it accomplishes some of the same goals, but in a novel way and in a way that if, if they stick with it, potentially does change things and shake things up going forward. And I don't, I really don't think that in a vacuum, that's a bad thing. I just think overall, Tom King has been, there's been too much of that in too sloppy and shotgun of a fashion, you know? Um, but, you know, in isolation, I, I think this worked. Ugh, I hate to say it. I don't even, I don't want to defend this run, but this arc has, has kind of hit with me, I guess. What were you going to say, Brian? You were going to go off? Yeah, Zach, go, be- go off, King. Before I go off, Zach, do you, is there anything you want to say? Um, no, go ahead. Okay. Uh, this is all horse shit, <laughs> uh, for so many reasons, but, but I have a couple that I think are, are valid. Now, Vince, you ignorant slut. Uh, the fact that this wedding is horse shit. Yeah. Um, I don't know why you would say that a character that has been barely a feature in this run makes a makes an emotionally resonant death because oh, why well, I, I agree we... I agreed with him so lump me in with that okay go for it oh no I just said I agreed with him so oh, okay. uh, cast cast your ire my way as well no but I, I just I, I mean it's partially it's partially what we bring to the table with Alfred then, then he gets no credit for that uh yeah okay I mean he gets some credit no he doesn't because he didn't do anything with Alfred he gets no credit for that. Um, well, but does he really? I mean, these these are comics, and let's be honest, half of the emotional weightlifting has already been done before any writer approaches a character. Sure, or a, but or a book. so little was done here that it's really he's he's completely banking the emotional response off of the prior 70 years and he did none zero of the heavy lifting himself well, what would you really want him to do not kill that alfred would... for no reason that's uh, not what okay to do. Uh, okay but like and here oh gosh i'm not defending tom king but i guess i am like <laughs> i kind we're, of we're feel monsters, like Zach. that well i guess this is just like more like a, a, a ideological stand like i think any kind of emotional prepping for this would have been superfluous. Like, I don't think that King could have done anything unique or interesting enough to make the death of Alfred any more or 
in any more powerful. I guess all you, all you could have done was telegraphed it more. Yes. Which, which they almost did by, by saying like, this is what will happen if the bat family shows up in Gotham. And then it did happen. Yeah. Yeah. It seems to me excessively like King is going to be praised by people, apparently like you guys, that <laughs> they're going to give him credit for doing this. And I just feel like there is no credit he deserves for this. This has nothing to do with what he wrote. This is shock value. And this is shock value for no real reason. Um, I don't. I don't know. Okay. I don't know. If, if this is if this is if this is the new status quo for the foreseeable future, I don't think it's for no reason. Because then you could say that about any writer that makes a change to any no status quo. No, 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 no. Any because, l- l- any death really. No, because here's the thing. Here's the thing. He doesn't have a story to tell about Alfred dying. He. I think he does. I don't think he does. I think Bruce, he's doing Bruce this. Already, mm, Bruce already thinks he's broke. Bruce, Bruce thinks that the bat is broken. He thinks it's as bad as it's going to get. And he's going to come back to Gotham and figure out that it's even worse. Um, That's still not an Alfred dying story. That's a Bruce story. Well, oh, that's but that's that's the story, though. That's what's going on here. Al- Alfred, for better or worse, is never bigger than Bruce. I don't disagree with that. I just think I just think that the king dropping this towards the end of his bat run or even if he was still doing his 105 issues, this is still towards the end of his bat run means that what he's he's doing the opposite of what our lord and savior Jonathan Hickman does. You know, Hickman said recently like what he does with comics is he breaks them then he puts them back together. He tells his story and he leaves the characters in relatively good shape for the next person to pick them up. And King well, is doing the opposite. King is taking a shit in the sandbox before going and playing on the swings. But that's not always a bad thing either. Um and other writers have done that well. I think of um Bendis's Daredevil run did that. Um but to me, and this is not just me hating on Tom King, I'm trying to be even level, even killed about all this and level about it, but I just feel like a lot of the stories that did that, the, the death or the status quo shift that comes at the end of it was being built up the entire time and had... Maybe, maybe... I, I'm making this all up on the cuff, right off the cuff right now, but... Part of me wonders if maybe it has been because this whole thing has been about Bruce wrestling with one, his parents' death, two, his own death. But now his his last parent, who he has kind of taken for granted, for granted has maybe died, has seemingly died. And I think that's an interesting... I think that's potentially interesting. I don't know what this does for Bruce other than make him even less interesting to me, I guess. I'll be, I mean, I definitely think it's less interesting than a CTE. I still am (laughs) way more interesting, honestly, if, if Bruce was (laughs) uh, on his way to becoming like a, a bumbling imbecile 
Oh, jeez. Uh, send all your mail to Zach at multiversitycomics.com. I believe it's actually Zachary, but we'll see. Okay, well. Uh, I'm not saying all people, but I'm just saying that's where King would take it. That's where some. That's where I would take it. I'm the only one not canceled this week. Oh, no. Um, let, me, oh. Let, let me just finish my, my rants yeah. here, okay? So... To me, there is like one of the things that I've been really enjoying about the Scott Snyder Justice League run is I feel like you first of all you you're never getting like bigger odds stacked against the heroes than you're getting in that run, right? But it doesn't seem like the heroes are just sinking further and further into despair. It seems like they're inspired to rise to the occasion, and I think that. Not every superhero comic needs to be super uplifting, but I just think that there's been like 70-something issues now of Bruce just getting beaten into the ground, and there's not enough time left in his run, even counting his Bat-Cat shit, where like there's not enough time to build him back up, nor do I think that anyone will pick up where King is leaving Bruce and continue that. So oh, I guarantee Dan Jurgens is going to pick up right where King <laughs> left off. Uh, but that's why I feel like he's shitting in the sandbox and then leaving. Like, he's just, he's messing everything up and then dropping the microphone. And I don't think that there's, I don't think he has a way to get him out of there. And so every time something else bad happens, it's just us trying to go, oh man, look, Bruce is really fucked now. And then something yeah. else happens. Oh, Bruce is really fucked now. And there's no, there, there's no, there's no rising above. There's no hope. There's no anything. And again, you can tell those stories, but this isn't a good version of those stories. Well, I, I would maybe disagree, because I do think that there is hope in Catwoman and yes. Selena. That's where the hope lies. And, and if this is a story about Bruce moving past everything that he held on to and moving forward, not mm-hmm. it's it sucks that Alfred died to facilitate that, but And it, if you're if you're to believe Tom King in his interviews, the the Bat Cat miniseries very much is about and I don't know if I do believe him, but I'm just telling you what he said, it is about building Bruce back up. Anyway, sorry, Zach. I think I interrupted. No, you. no, you're no, you're good. That that's helpful to my point. Um, I I I could see this going in a interesting direction. If this is a story about Bruce like learning to move on, then it will have been worthwhile. I think. Even if 75% of it sucked big nuts. Yeah, yeah exactly. Because, I mean, that would be a big change. Like, imag- like, that would be lasting change. Like, imagine a new status quo where Bruce is happy. Yeah. I yeah. am fine with that being... I am fine with that concept, and I think that that is an interesting concept... I don't think that that's what King is moving towards. And not only that, I don't know if King's run will allow him to do that. Yeah, I, I 
Yes, I think I agree with you on that one, Brian. You know, I, I agree. I agree with Zach in that that would be a great outcome for all of this. Uh, I yeah, I, I ultimately don't think either King or DC will somehow let that happen. <laughs> I also you know? don't think in story. I don't think getting Selena would like Bruce beats himself up over being a child who couldn't stop death. He's well, never going to what... forgive himself for being an adult who can't stop death. And but, Alf, and he just it's, it's not going to happen. But he could though. And it's not it's not getting Selena like it's not I don't mean to like position her as like a prize. I mean like she is the catalyst that facilitates that change. Like Yeah, it's like when Larry King found his seventh wife and helped him get over his sixth wife. Yes, exactly. Uh, tugging on collar, Vince checked the news. <laughs> <laughs> I uh, take a big swig of piping hot coffee and then look at Twitter. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I just don't think... I, I, just, I, I can't... I cannot get on board with this. Yeah. I think, you know what, I think we all have pretty valid, interesting takes on it. I think this was an interesting conversation. Um, can I can I end it with a, a funny note of something I read on the internet this week regarding Tom King's run? Sure. Yeah, please do. Somebody, I don't know who this was, and I don't know where I saw it, but it was a comment or on Reddit or something. Somebody described Tom King's run on Batman as being manga style storytelling <laughs> and i just think that that's a blessed uh, a blessed thought to end this discussion uh, there is there manga is not style. nearly enough manga upskirt style. in this to be <laughs> manga style storytelling that's right <laughs> i don't i don't know what that is supposed to mean <laughs> I don't know. I mean, manga style. Oh, okay. I know. I know what your joke is supposed to mean. I was gonna say. And we know what manga Brian's been reading. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that terrible. We, we uh, never learned. Review we for the we never learned, do we, Brian? <laughs> oh, that's a, okay. That's a multiversity manga club joke. Go check yes, out our podcast. Is. Yes, it's better than ours. It's better than this podcast for sure. Um. All right. What's next, senpai? <laughs> <laughs> um, next is uh, Black Mask: Year of the Villain, numero uno, written by Tom Taylor, illustrated by Cully Hamner, colored by Dave Stewart, who you don't see doing a lot of DC stuff. Yeah, I think certain artists, right? Like, yes, I'm pretty sure he colors. Cully Hamner when 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 Hamner gets a chance to do yeah but even that's rare so yeah um I really don't have to you guys want to talk about this I don't have too much to say about this I just want to say that Black Mask's father is Keith Hernandez <laughs> and uh <laughs> and, yeah, and yeah, his, his mother is not Elaine Bennis so. right yes uh, to be fair, he never once says, I am Black Mask's father. <laughs> so, um, take it away. Uh, pick him away, toys. 
Okay. Uh, Zach, I know you had something really interesting that you wanted to say about this. So why don't you go first? Okay. Literally the only interesting thing I have to say about this, because I, I, I didn't love this as much as I enjoyed the Sinestro issue, but, um, and I really hate doing this. I, I really hate this stuff, this, this line of thought that my brain went down when I read this issue, but I, I, I couldn't help recalling the uh, Year of the Villain stinger that we had in a recent issue of uh, Tom King's Batman, which we just finished talking about, um, that was set squarely during the City of Bane nonsense. And then yet here is this, happening in a world where that is seemingly not happening because it's it's referencing things in gotham being normal um <laughs> so editorially in terms of continuity there's an issue here and i don't know why yeah i don't I, know why i will say this i think that you can pretty much dismiss anything in Tom King's Batman as from hap as being happening at the same time as anything else in the DC universe right now. Like there is no way that Ex Batman except is they put a timestamp on that, and that's the thing. That's the thing is that it doesn't match up, and that's fine. It doesn't have to, but then why put a timestamp on it? Right. Sure. Why Why try to make it? Um, yeah, that's, yeah. that's kind of my point is that they comics do this all the time and ultimately it really doesn't matter. It doesn't matter one little bit, but it's just another case of, uh, I guess seeing the, the, the cracks in the, in the, in the wall here, you know, the, the left and right hands who, who either don't know what the other is doing or don't care. Um, and, and that's a little discouraging in a way. Can I discourage you even more? Sure. <laughs> uh, don't forget that Alfred is very much alive in Doomsday Clock. <laughs> <laughs> see, see, and that's, I mean, like, ultimately, yeah, like, Tom King's Batman is so off doing its own thing, and that's totally fine. Like, comics continuity is kind of stupid when you make it the end-all, be-all. You know, I, I think story comes first. But um, it's just like, does DC think Tom King's Batman is important or not? No, they clearly don't. <laughs> yeah. They clearly don't. They clearly go, ah, uh, this guy's sniffing his own farts and we're just going to let him sit in the corner and, and do that. <laughs> Although, let me just say, be, I meant to say this before, I truly don't believe Alfred's dead. Let me I, say that. I mean, I mean, okay, here's the thing. I think as a comics podcast that covers these things on a weekly basis, anytime we talk about a death, there should just be an asterisk there right, saying, sure. like, of, por of course we realize that... But but I'm not this talking like not, I'm 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 not talking like in five years it'll be retconned. I'm talking like I don't think he's dead at the end of this arc. Like in the next issue, it was uh, Alfred Dummy all along, whatever. Or or his neck is broken, but he's not dead. Like you know. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Anyway. Yeah. I, yeah. I, I think there. I think we should just 
tacitly there's sure. always okay. that. Always an asterisk. Got it. All right. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> let me say one other thing about this book, which is that uh, I've I've missed Cully Hamner at DC. Yeah. Uh, when was the last? He did the the Signal miniseries, right? Yes. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and that was nice, and that was yeah, that was like a year or more ago, I think now or yeah, who knows? Time has time has no meaning to us anymore. <laughs> that is true. <laughs> yeah. So the DC Weekly when... grind has broken our sense of scale and time. So yeah, yeah, and just life in general and yeah. the goings on of America in 2019, and yep. and also there's no way to figure out when that was released either. So <laughs> we're really lost. So it's lost to our memories. <laughs> yep. Yep. If only only we took better notes um the the trade came out almost exactly one year ago okay oh seriously okay yeah so uh so a little little over a year ago and that was also delayed a while remember Uh Uh uh-huh uh-huh so i guess what i wanted to say about this this issue is so i really liked the sinestro issue by mark russell um and i think it was yelder ray sonar yes that's, yeah, that's right. This issue is fine. It's like an average, crumpulent comic. Crumpulent's like okay, right? That's. I think we felt was crumpulent that? was better than okay. Okay, then it's then it's a little below. Then it's crumpulent. a crumpulent comic. Okay, all right, very I good. Yeah, I don't know. I I occasionally get weird vibes from Casper Crump's Instagram. I don't really know where he's. <laughs> I don't know where he stands these days on well, some things. When we say crumpulent, we are only referring to Casper Crump playing Vandal Savage on the first season of Legends of Tomorrow. <laughs> that is crumpulent. Okay. Yes. Yeah. This is this is several notches below that. But the point I want to make about it is a comparison to the Sinestro book because I think I think it's interesting to look at what corporate comics try to accomplish and and what they deliver sometimes i think sinestro is a case where that comic tried to give us something fresh and new that didn't stick to a formula that we would expect and i think for the most part it delivered while it still played on like classic superhero golden age silver age tropes at times and and it felt you know very throwback kirby in that way it it gave us a comic book that tried something new that we don't see every week while also feeling like it was rooted in, in DC uh, history or whatever. This, this feels like your run of the mill. Like if you told somebody, I mean, they told Mark Russell to, to do a Sinestro comic and he went for something. Tom Taylor just did like yeoman's work. He gave you a little bit of an origin here again. Oh, uh, Roman Sionis has bad, a bad dad, you know, uh, every villain in DC Villains Month had a bad mom or dad. Um, he gives you a little bit too much about why Roman is the way he is, and then gave you like a typical villain story that that only diverted a little bit in the end. Whereas like uh, at the end of uh, the Sinestro book, Sinestro went away with this this big massive Titan that that's maybe going to be like his sidekick for a little while. I feel like in this book, well, it does leave black mask in a bit of a cliffhanger in a bit of a different place. I don't believe at all that that's the next time we're going to see 
the next time we see Black Mask, I don't think it's going to have anything to do with what happens at the end of this issue, you know? Agreed. Where he's he's in some other country or whatever. Uh to, to me, this is just boilerplate stuff. It's well done, boilerplate, but it's not a writer taking a concept and trying to reach for more than that. The, this is the ultimate tie-in that just does its job. And I think, um, you know, I think I'm, I think I'm at the point in my comic book enjoying life that I don't need books like this anymore. I don't need tie-ins like this. I need him to give me a little something more. Yeah, I don't disagree you, with any of that. You guys agree? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and that's very fair. Uh, I also think, though, just in Tom, in a small defense of Tom Taylor, I think that Sinestro is a character that leads himself to greater chances being taken and more just depth of character than Black Mask does. That's not to say that you can't get there for Black Mask, but it's more easy to tap into that for Sinestro. Yeah, it'd be way easier if it was regular Mask. <laughs> the, the Mask. Somebody yeah, stop I him, he there, right? on that mask. <laughs> I saw that tweet this week. <laughs> By the way, I had seen this tweet when it first came out, but I woke my wife, my wife, up laughing so hard at it the other day. <laughs> It's maybe oh, no. like it's less than two months old, so it's a pretty new tweet. It was uh, yesterday, like the film, except about the Yin Yang Twins. And when I try to explain <laughs> it, I'm put in a mental institution. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh man! Amazing, uh, amazing. All right, we got two more books to to push through with here. We've got uh, Superman Year One. Number two, written by Frank Miller, illustrated by John Romita Jr. Zach, you asked us to to not let you forget a certain uh, phrase that you wanted to uh, to to put forth here. So, what is that phrase, buddy? Oh, hold on, give me give me just a minute. Let me get it pulled up here. I wasn't I wasn't prepared. Um... Shut your pie hole. You disgrace the U.S. Navy. You hock a loogie all over Mount Rushmore. <laughs> oh, this is good, then, is what you're saying. Um, Actually, yeah, it kind of was oh. sort of good. <laughs> you bet you weren't expecting that one. Go I on. wasn't. <laughs> okay, so there is half of a good comic here. I, at least. Um, there's half of an okay comic. No, there's half of a good <laughs> idea here. Okay, so here's... Okay, so yeah, we'll say one-third because <laughs> the issue gets good once Superman leaves the Navy yep. um, and stops being a war criminal. Yep. Um, <laughs> Which, by the way, we'll have to unpack that later. Yes, but <laughs> But yeah, keep going. Um... Then he goes to Atlantis and meets Lori Lamaris. Lem- Lem- is that her name? Lamaris, yeah. Lamaris, that's right. Yeah, yeah. And um, fights Poseidon for her honor, and all of that is great. And it would have that. All of that is very good. I was getting major like 
all-star Superman vibes from that section had it not been for Miller's narration. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. And that art is some of John Romita Jr.'s best art I've seen in a while at the yes. end. Yes. That that whole section is so good. And I just have to say, like, not at all where I expected this series to go. No. The, um, that, was, that was a left turn none of us saw coming. Yeah. Um... <laughs> yeah, I, I actually really enjoyed that stuff for looking past the copious unnecessary narration. I mean, let's also just put out there that it's a weird idea to have Superman so basically weird. fuck a mermaid. And and not only that, but, <laughs> oh, yeah. but to have the Navy be like, yeah, we know there's mermaids. What are you going to do about it? And then <laughs> no, he's like, I'm going to fuck good. one. That's what I'm going to do That's about good. it. That's good. <laughs> Real good. It's just um... not an expected turn at all. <laughs> I mean, Frank Miller is clearly working some stuff out in these comics so, yeah poseidon poseidon guys <laughs> yeah oh man do you think this is is this a trump allegory <laughs> i literally could not tell you who uh who frank miller voted for <laughs> i can't i'm pretty sure it's not trump but also his politics are so seemingly confused and yes. and it's it's real weird. Um, okay, but yes, Zach, I I agree. The the Atlantis stuff was by far the most interesting stuff in this in this series so far. After two oversized issues, by far the the most artistically aesthetically pleasing, and uh, and really not what I would have expected from. I'm not boilerplate Superman, you know. Yes. Um, yeah. Which is. Kind anyway, of this episode is brought to you by the word boilerplate, apparently. <laughs> God, fuck you, man. I I just learned a new word this week and I wanted to show it off and and, and all I, I told to go fuck myself. But, I'm just teasing. I'm uh, just teasing buddy. Um but but here's my big problem with this issue. The first two thirds of it. The first two thirds of it, which I I think Clark joining the Navy or whatever is a weird enough kind of dissonant enough idea on its own without it also having seemingly nothing of any importance to say about the character. You know, I don't think I don't think his time with with the Navy really told us anything. Um it's weird how so so he's he's had basic training, right? And again, this is something that he did in the first issue. He draws upon his dad, I think it was, Jonathan saying, "Don't don't be a show off. Don't show off your powers too much, you know." And then he proceeds to do exactly that. Yes, that was you one know? of my big notes is that he he he's he's like, "I got to hold back while I'm racing." Okay. But as soon as there's a gun in my hand, I'm the best shot that ever lived. <laughs> Yep, and then and then after the, after the shooting stuff, he's also like whipping every PT test that he could do. You know, he's yeah. like swimming out in front of everybody. It so I don't understand what kind of point Frank Miller is trying to make there. Is is he literally just 
does does he think that that's something that Jonathan would say, but then like Clark wouldn't heed that at all, or is he even thinking about that disconnect at all? Is he even trying to make a point there, you know? Or is it just like I'm just writing a comic book, you know? <laughs> like it it doesn't seem like there's any thematic uh, lesson or anything trying to be conveyed there. I think um, he, Clark's just a, a red hooded, red red hooded, <laughs> red, red blooded of American boy who who likes to to run fast and and spoon mermaids and um uh, who am I? Who am I? Superman will be Superman. <laughs> I'm also I'm also um you know we like to talk about content and ratings here on this podcast for some reason uh. I still don't really know why this is a black label book, I guess. Um, there, there's a couple of goddammits, I think, in this issue. But for the most part, and not that there's anything wrong with this, <laughs> Miller is being fairly tame as far as content's concerned. Um, you know, there's a bunch of people that get uh, bloodily murked halfway through the issue, but that's something that happens in DC Comics every week, you know? Violence has never really been taboo. Um, but, like, I, I was expecting, considering this is a Black Label title, I was expecting the drill sergeant to be, like, Arlie Ermey in, in yeah, Full Metal Jacket. Exactly. You know? <laughs> Six foot nine, I didn't know they stacked shit that high or whatever. Yeah, exactly, you know? yeah. <laughs> but, uh, but, but surprisingly tame there. Um, I think we need to talk about the, like, special, like, SEAL team mission that they go on well okay can, can, can we can we avoid that for just one second when i talk about something else sure yeah yeah, so, yeah yeah i just think that what's so fascinating to me is that clearly there is a clearly miller has positive feelings towards the military would, you, would we agree with that sure like based on how this is written yet i i get the feeling he has no idea how the military works because I, I can't imagine Clark being, first of all, being, like, picked on for being so good. That maybe by the people, maybe by the fellow grunts he would be. But there's no way that Army leader, the Navy leadership wouldn't be like, holy shit, we have found the best ever soldier. <laughs> Let, let's yeah. make sure we take care of him. And that is never once stated in this book whatsoever. Everyone just... They would... They would actually probably be wheeling him to a lab yes, trying to exactly. figure it out. Yes, you know? <laughs> 100%. They also would not honorably discharge him for being too good at army. Like This is not a thing that would ever happen. <laughs> well, he disobeyed an order, so... But, but, but he, what happened because he disobeyed the order? He yeah, saved know, everything. <laughs> yes, but that whole part is just wrought with... Uh... Yeah. Yeah, uh, up is he, down and left is right. He yeah. he didn't he didn't kill on command. So <laughs> yeah, yeah, he, right, yeah. Which I have to say, I was like, I was worried about that section because I thought Miller was going to have Clark murk somebody. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah I really no. was. Yeah, I mean, can I, can I, I mean, Clark doesn't, but. The SEAL team sure does. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah they do. Yeah. So, and... go, oh, what were you going to say? No, no. Go ahead. Uh, so I was going to say, like, 
I don't think that nobody like okay. The political climate that we're in in, in 2019 is is uh, real fucked up, right? I don't think I don't think you should never um, portray terrorists or enemies or whatever that are uh, like I don't I don't think portraying Islamic terrorism is completely off the table, is what sure. I'm saying, sure. but. Boy, Frank Miller sure is hung up on that. <laughs> like, as soon as I saw that, I'm like, ah, Frank did it again. You know, like, they're, they're, it becomes, it becomes Opening a riff. weird, it becomes a weird trope. Yeah, it's like, you know, it's like the Holy Terror thing. It's just his thing now. And it's not, uh, yeah, I, and I, and I think the, 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 the lesson, okay, that wouldn't be such a problem in and of itself, but the lesson is also like, so Clark uses non-lethal force, which is, we're supposed to think as the readers that that is a good and honorable thing that Clark does. And it is right. Like yes. he sits on this grenade. Nobody gets killed for it. Meanwhile, the seal team is murking everybody left and right. And, but we're not also supposed to think that that's gruesome. You know what I mean? We're supposed like I, to think that what Clark does is better than what they do, but is but what they do is not bad. Yeah, I guess. It's just it comes across as a really mixed message to me because like yeah. because again, Superman is Superman, and, and if and. He has the ability to um, complete the mission without a single person dying. Like that's how that's how comics can go, right? Um, and it. Uh, I don't know if I'm being very articulate here. I, I think because because I, again, like terrorism is not necessarily something that needs to be treated with kid gloves. I'm just saying, like, it's so mixed the way that. You know what I mean? It, yeah. Well, it's presented as like the preferred outcome, but the unlikely and um and um what's the word I'm looking for? I had it like on the tip of my tongue. It it's more improbable. It is the more improbable outcome. Yeah. I and mean, so, we're dealing with superheroes, so. Yeah, right, right. But it is also, I mean, it's kind of like, I, I you get the impression that he is dismissed because he he did a thing that most can't do, and that is dangerous. Right. So imperialism marches on, well... Uh, <laughs> well I, I mean, I, I, I'm reading my own politics into this and everything. I know, I know, I know. You know, that's so... so don't add us on Twitter, please. Like... <laughs> I'm not Those even of say, us who are still on there. I'm not even saying it's problematic. I'm just saying yeah. I don't. I'm just saying the message is mixed. It's murky. Yeah. 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 Is. Which and guess, that's kind of that's what I'm saying. That's what I'm trying to say too. Yeah. Um, and I guess by nature it is right. Like. Yeah. It's just a weird. <laughs> Again, I'm not sure. Like then Clark goes and immediately has sex with a mermaid. I'm not sure what's really like. I, I don't know. 
<laughs> I don't know what we learn about the character from that, other than he he does things. I guess he does things in a way that are that 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 is more honorable. Yeah, I guess that makes sense. You yeah. know what's not honorable? Well, he doesn't wash uh, like sea creature goop off him before making out with his lady. He's covered I mean, in gross shit. I mean, isn't isn't she just always covered in? <laughs> oh no! Oh boy! <laughs> She's a mermaid. <laughs> now we're getting into into Vince's mermaid fantasy. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, no, yeah. No. Just, uh, everyone knows that a mermaid is covered in a certain viscosity. That, uh... <laughs> they're rolling around in the seaweed. There's, there's like, there's uh, algae and stuff down there. I think we can all agree mermaids are subhuman trash and uh, are covered in garbage all the time. <laughs> uh, no banging your head on the display case, please. This contains a very rare, very bird. Can I can I say, I really, I I think that this next issue is gonna go do something more normal based on the Daily Planet yes teaser thing, and that bums me out because I just want he's gonna I want fuck the giant planet yep. that's on the top of the <laughs> okay if that happens that's fine but um I I want this to keep going like I want. I want Clark to meet Aquaman next issue, and we just double down on this Atlantis stuff. And I kept waiting for Clark that, to be honest never with goes you. to Metropolis ever at all. Arthur, um, Arthur's going to show up in the next issue, and he's going to say, ah, I see you met my fiance, Lori Lamaris. Yeah. <laughs> oh. <laughs> uh, cucked by oh. Superman yet again. <laughs> what? I said cucked by Superman yet again. <laughs> That's the that's cover of a Golden Age uh, yes, it is. issue of Superman. I've been cucked by Superman. <laughs> <laughs> oh, what are we doing? Uh, we're talking about Teen Titans number 33, written by uh, Adam Glass. Um, illustrated by, who did this? It was, it was a fill-in artist, but they did a really nice job. Sean Chen. Sean Chen. Chen, yes. Of X-Men The End. Yes. Um, so, I, I was the one who wanted to talk about this issue. Because, first of all, I, I think we just need to say, there's a lot of sort of normal Teen Titan stuff that happens in this issue. But it's it's the typical, it's what Adam Glass has been doing this whole run, which is writing this team dynamic very well and introducing some nice interplay between the team, but I really want to talk about the last few pages of this issue. And I mm -hmm. think this is really a fascinating place to take this. So just to recap for our readers, earlier in this run, Robin builds a prison. The team is very upset about this. Then Red Arrow kills Deathstroke. The team is even more upset about this. And so they vow to find some sort of new way to do this. Uh, much like the new way that Coop searches for in Wet Hot American Summer before Gene teaches him how to dance. Um, but uh, it turns out that they no longer have a prison. They essentially have Jin brainwashing and mind-wiping villains to turn them into, like, normal citizens now. And I want to talk about the implication of that. 
first of all, I do too. Yeah. First of all, do you Go guys? Ahead. What was your initial reaction to seeing that, Zach? So my my thought was, and and this ties in mostly to to Robin's narration about how. Uh, let me let me check here. Um, you know, we need to find a new way. My father's way of crime fighting is outdated. Blah blah blah, and. Although Bruce was not involved in this, in fact, he was actually on the receiving end, but my mind immediately went to how this has already been done before in Identity Crisis. Yes. And that didn't work out very well, Damien. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Vince, what do you think of this? Um, I think it's really interesting. I think... Um... It's okay. I think something that we talk about from time to time on this show is how like the books that are involving the teens or that are maybe aimed at a, a slightly younger audience than the average DC fair should be less mature or deal with less mature themes than like your typical DC book. And I think when this run started, we were a little worried that it was going to skew too far in the mature, serious, kind of grim direction, right? Sure. And and I think, especially based off that that special that we talk yes. about all the time. Um, but I think Adam Glass does a surprisingly good and subtle job of like walking right up to that line. Because this stuff where Jin is messing with their heads, if you think about it too much, it's it's really dark and serious. The way that it's portrayed is a little more... It's not not serious, but... Zach, you reference Identity Crisis. It's not treated with that kind of gritty, realistic, real-world um, gravity. Right. Well, I, I would yet. say that like it's not. So it. I mean, the thing that made Identity Crisis dark and gritty was not necessarily the mind wiping so much as the crimes that precipitated that. Right. Right. But the to but even the tone that those debates around the the mind wiping. I I remember it being very. Very adult or, or serious you know i guess uh, yeah I, I i actually don't recall very well so you may yeah you may be right and this just seems like it's supposed to be i mean it, it is supposed to be a serious step that's being made but it's also um i don't want it's not it's not cartoony but it's it's I don't know. I don't know what I'm. I don't know exactly how to say it. It's not on that level of of gravity or grimness. Well, you know, there, there is one very clear reason why it's not. Oh, lay it on me. It might be what I'm reaching for. Because they somehow rehabilitate the atomic skull, and so there's a guy walking around with a flaming head who doesn't know he's a supervillain. <laughs> yeah, there he's just go. a guy whose name is uh, Joey Marino, according to this, and who works at a ski lodge or something. He's just, looks like he's holding ski poles and is just, you know, uh, making fun of suburban kids who come up there for the winter. And uh, it, yeah, 
No, I, yeah. I, I, I also think where I thought you were going, Vince, with this, which is not where you were going, but I, I'll sort of uh, feed off what you said. I feel like this is an idea a teenager would have and think was justified. Like, this seems like very teenage logic to me. Mm-hmm. Like, oh. Yeah, it's not... it, yeah it, it does. Yeah. And, I, yeah. And which, I think... which is kind of where I was going just with the – I was kind of – there's like a folly of youth aspect here. Yes, because exactly. Yeah. The, yeah. Damien thinks he's doing something new and innovative that will fix everything that A, won't, and B, has been done before. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's yeah, that's that's way better than I said it. <laughs> yeah, and so I, that's what I liked the most about this was just I feel like this is the solution that somebody who is still figuring out how the world works would think is fair and just and good, and I really enjoyed that element of it. And uh, yeah, I thought this issue introduced a lot of really really interesting ideas going forward. I think this is by far the book of the uh, New Justice books that is taking the most chances, which mm. I did not see coming. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think this is taking a lot, even though it's not my favorite of those books, I think this is taking the most chances. I think this is in the most surprising place two years later or whatever it is. Would you guys agree with that? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Would, yeah. And I love how it, I love how it keeps referencing the Deathstroke stuff from that crossover when it easily could have just moved on to something else. Right. Yeah, that's I agree. that's still very much in the foreground. I completely agree. All right, folks. So if you're not reading Powers of Ten, House of X, you can uh, stop listening in just a minute and. Uh, we, we forgive you. We promise. Um, let's do our list before we do that. Uh, this week on the good list is Superman's pal Jimmy Olsen, which is very good. Uh, on the Sandman Universe list, we get Lucifer, the Jurgens list Nightwing, the Bendis list Pearl, and the Walmart list Wonder Woman Come Back to Me. Uh, Vince, do you have a list of what's coming out next week? I do, yes. Um, Action uh, 1014, Batgirl 38, Batman Beyond 35, Curse of the White Knight number 2, Batman Superman number 1, Books of Magic number 11, Detective Comics 1010, Dial H6, Flash 77, Freedom Fighters 8, oh man, Justice League 30, Justice League Dark 14, Martian Manhunter 8, uh, Red Hood Outlaw 37, Superman 14, Terrifics 19, Wonder Woman 77, holy cow. It's a lot of comics. That's what we get for getting such few comics this week. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, after the break, we're back with some Hickman talk. If not, we'll see you guys next time. Hello, podcast listener. I'm Kevin. I'm Jess. And I'm Nick. And we are Make Mine Multiversity, a monthly podcast discussing all things Marvel Comics. Each month, we will be discussing Marvel news and looking at some of their major recent comic book or movie releases. We also look at older storylines, character histories, and Marvel's place in the overall comics market. We have a variety of perspectives. The recent Marvel fan. The jaded longtime reader. And the reader who's finally digging into Marvel's back catalog after a decade of avoidance. If you want to know what books made me cry this month, 
what books made me almost cry this month, and what books I wish would make me feel something. Check out Make Mine Multiversity, a Marvel podcast, the fourth Friday of every month on multiversitycomics.com, Apple Podcast, or your podcatcher of choice. And Make Mine Marvel Multiversity. Multiversity. Backed by popular demand is the uh, Hickman cast, House of X cast, Powers of Ten cast, whatever we're calling it now. But we're uh, Zach, Zach had a name for it. What's that, buddy? Did I? The The Cuckoos? Oh, the Stepford Cuckoos. Yeah. Only it's the Sufian Cuckoos. <laughs> the Sufian Cuckoos, yeah. Sufian Cuckoos, okay. Uh, anyway, we're going to talk about House of X number two, written by Jonathan Hickman, illustrated by Pepe Larraz, and Powers of X 2, written by Jonathan Hickman, illustrated by R.B. Silva. Um, I guess we should probably start with House of X 2, right? Yes. Okay, I'm going to say this is probably the best comic released in 2019 so far. Mm. You're probably right. All right, uh, good well, show. Well, all right, done. Okay, <laughs> we'll talk later. Um, hey, elaborate on that. So, one of the things that I love about comics is that there are things that you think are set in stone locked in, can't be changed, and then either some shithead comes in and kills Alfred or <laughs> or you get somebody who's able to not throw away anything that happened before but just expand on it and change it so much. And I'm going to reference Lost because Zach's going to like it, but... I feel like one of the best things that the Lost Pilot did was it gave you moments that you didn't realize were important until much later. Like the part in the pilot where you see Locke sh- wiggle his toes mm, like, and shake yeah. his foot. And it just seems like, oh, it's a guy who was in a plane crash, and so he's seeing if he can still walk. But then when you figure out what that means, it doesn't. it's not undoing the scene that you saw in the pilot. It is building on top of that and making it so much more interesting. Now, do that with a character that's 50 years old or so, and that's what Hickman did with Moira in this issue. It doesn't undo anything we know about the character. It doesn't retcon in the way that a retcon can be dismantling, where it's taking something away. It just adds such depth and such... Such an interior hidden, a hidden interior life. I just, I'm marveling at this. Yeah, it casts everything in a new light, so that when I go back and read Phalanx Covenant and Moira is <laughs> doing things, I think, oh my goodness, she knew all along what was happening. <laughs> what, what a great actor here to just play along, uh, which we don't know that yet. There's so much that we don't know. We don't know which life anything ever was when. Right. We we kind of do, but not really. Yeah, so uh, to me, this is just the perfect example of how to change things in a comic without being, uh, without undoing the past. Let's talk about the, the change, the retcon. Go for it. So... 
Moira is a mutant, and her mutant ability is that she, after she dies, she reincarnates at the beginning of her life again with all of the memories of her previous life. So she's not a new person. She's the same person at the beginning again. She's she's a, a circle. She mo- her, her life moves in a circle. And um, when we saw her approaching Charles in Powers of Ten number one, that was in her 10th life. Yes. And we see all of her lives leading up to that, but one. Yeah, which is pretty fascinating like what what a what a hickman-esque masterstroke to not give us that yeah um and and of note we see her die in every life except for another one Mm -hmm. yep and hickman being hickman gives us a humongous timeline that spells basically all of this out for you in a way, like you would think that keeping track of the the first time that I read this issue, I was like, "Oh God, I'm gonna have to read it like several times just to to kind of place everything and and kind of establish myself." We're gonna we'll have to watch that again, Zach. What? What again? It's another Lost reference. After they watched the first oh, Dharma okay. video, come on, Sh- yeah. shut up oh, with okay, your okay, Lost okay, shit. Okay, get okay. that out. Get that out of here. Uh, <laughs> Uh, but but then at the end he gives you this like perfectly understandable timeline so that if you don't have the time because you have to read 10 other bad DC comics uh, <laughs> that week you can understand it all in one reading mm-hmm. yeah yeah Ex- except I... for the parts that you're not meant to understand yet yeah um I I did want to say I I'm texted you guys about this but then didn't follow up after this issue came out um i had mentioned after powers of 10 number one that it seemed like the the year designations like the year one year 10 etc may not have been um you know one-to-one you know exact year designations just because this timeline um you know in year Life 10 shows Moira meeting Xavier at year 17, which, uh, to be fair, we don't know if that means, like, she meets him at school and she doesn't approach him until later. Um, But the powers of 10 number two, which we'll talk about in a minute, um, we see the scene in year 43 where Moira and Xavier recruit Magneto, which is 10 years before House of X. So that that does track there. So... um, Hickman, he, he's got it. It's all laid out right there. <laughs> he wins again. <laughs> wins again. Um, I have been fascinated by this idea uh, uh, since I read this issue um, because it really is just kind of like a captivating concept to think about, you know, what would you do if you could begin your life again with ev- all of the knowledge that you have from your preceding life? And Hickman 
Hickman does things that I wouldn't have even really thought about and, and kind of take would have taken for granted like in her second life she doesn't marry or seek out her husband from her first life because she knows all of his faults and can't bear to put up with that again (laughs) um and Uh, you get the impression that she lived a pretty happy normal life in her first life um and and hickman kind of i can't remember if it's in the actual issue i need to i would need to reread it again or if it was a someone's take that i that i read but you you think that doing that living life that way over and over again would kind of almost push you into kind of a sociopathic ideology um where you almost become godlike in a way because you can manipulate people and events based on your prior knowledge and people you extend that and people become pawns and and their lives are devalued because you know in some way they've already lived their life and so there's the second life that they're living in some ways could have less value in your eyes and and everyone everyone just becomes a pawn for your what you think is best and and she does that and for a good chunk of this she thinks that if she makes a mistake or whatever it's all just going to happen again and it's it's not until she realizes later that there's an end to this that yes that that comes into uh kind of an epiphany for her right right so that that's one check and that that check comes in the form of destiny who's a character that i was not familiar with um but went and did a little bit of reading about afterward and um who has a really interesting history and in x-men comics and is kind of the perfect foil here for moira because destiny is a uh she she is um she can see the future and in Moyer's case can see all of her futures, even though it's cyclical. Mm. Um, so man, like it's just <laughs> so well considered and was so well thought out. Everything yeah. about this issue feels like it was thought out to a point where many people would have given up. <laughs> right it's yeah. just like it's so it's so worked over and pounded down to a fine perfect it's it's just it's it's so refined it's so distilled into everything that i want out of a story it's yeah, just kinda, so good it kind of seems effortless too you know yes exactly. it really does it just trans um, it transitions from like the gifted years, the time of hate and fear, to all of a sudden the next page, the this army of of sentinels is uh, descending on them, and then in the next page it's uh, Moira doing her like Black Widow style espionage. You know, it's all these different lives happening page by page, and you're never confused. The puzzle just fits perfectly in just an effortless fashion. It's 
something to behold. It's amazing. And that is where we need to give a ton of credit to Pepe Larraz. Oh, he kills it. Because he is he has to do so many different books in this one book. Mm-hmm. And he nails them all. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah um I hate to play favorites, but I, I kinda think Laraz is becoming my favorite of the two artists. Um they're both so so good, but Laraz is his work I am less familiar with and I'm consistently amazed by it. Um Yeah. Oh man. This this freaking issue. <laughs> yeah. I, I I think it's important to couch my next comment in the fact that I just before said that House of X number two is the best comic of the year so far, <laughs> which is to say that I thought Powers of Ten number two was very good but felt like a little bit of a letdown because of how good House of X was. Mm, I don't know. Um, I, can I... Uh, yeah, go ahead, Vince. So I think... I think if you were to pluck an individual comic out of this series and say, what's the, what is the best, what is the most well-crafted, well-crafted comic then yes, you're right, Brian. This House of House of X number two is the one that, like, at the end of at the multiversity top ten list of the year, this is the one that I would probably put out there as like the shining beacon of what this run was, even though it's still in its infancy. But I think Hickman is really right in the way that these each issue recontextualizes the ones that came before. And for my money, every issue so far, and it's only been four issues for us, or has it been five? No, it's um, been four. It's been okay. four. Yeah, four. Every issue has been better than the one that came before. And I think Powers of Ten, oh, man, just the places it goes by the end. Yes, just, yes. Uh, again, like, just blows my mind at, at the what you, – you think Hickman's scope is one thing, and then he literally does, like – taking another factor of 10 up. Uh, it's it's insane. When I, Oh, man. I felt like my brain melted when I got to the end of Powers of 10 and he was explaining, like, the hive mind stuff. Yes. The world mind. Ah! Oh, and it's, it's, it's presented perfectly because you just get... You, so... This book was relatively minimal in its use of the of the prose infographic pages. You yeah. get you you get one prior to the end of the story and it's just it's telling you about how this world mind called Nimbus was formed. Then we jump into the year 1000 story and you get this kind of weird strange comic emissary who comes and you find out that they are, they call themselves the Phalanx, which is a X-Men thing. And what do you, what, you know, the Phalanx ask, what do you seek? And then one of the older uh, people, the older, um, whatever these, we don't know if they're humans or mutants or 
what they are, um, but they request ascension. And then we just get this ominous panel of this big black mass hanging over the planet. And then Hickman just kind of rather academically, matter-of-factly goes into a breakdown of the types of societies. And in a very clinical way, um, explains to us what we just saw. And it doesn't feel, um, it, it doesn't feel, it, it's exposition, but it, it's not. Right. Yeah. You know? That's how does this stuff work like that? Yeah. What, what, what separates this from other exposition you get? It's, it shouldn't work, but it does. Yeah. Well, uh, on one hand, it is, it is presented clearly as exposition. Mm-hmm. It, it it's, is. It's exactly, not hidden yeah. in like, Charles, let me tell you about yeah. the hive mind. Like that <laughs> shit drives me crazy. Well, right. Said, yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, that's part of it. My my gripe with this issue, and gripe is the wrong word. The reason this doesn't ascend to me as high as some of the other stuff we've seen is that I am still not really loving the year 1000 stuff just yet. Okay. It seems a little bit okay. too remote, a little bit too dispassionate, just robotic. And I know that's the point. I, I'm... I, I am not um I'm not, you know, bothered by the by how he's writing it. It just isn't landing with me just yet. Sure. sure. I can see that. As as somebody who's like fascinated by the singularity and like th- I think a lot with great uh stunning amounts of terror about what a future looks like even beyond my life, you know? <laughs> like I see something like this cold, dispassionate uh world eater, you know, that's eating this essential like essentially mankind has has become the singularity and then there's something flying around eating that. Right. Uh it just it just hits me right in right in that button that I have that like is terrified about a, a, a the future that I'll never even witness. You know? See, I, I think all these are very interesting ideas conceptually. I think one of the things that I've enjoyed so much about this book is that I think some of Hickman's creator own stuff can feel a little bit cold and scientific purposefully. But my favorite Hickman stuff is when that rubs up against real emotion and I think the best of this of these books have have done that so far, um, and so I feel like that is the least emotional section of the book. Yeah, I don't know. G- giving yourself up to a collective hive mind at this point—that's like the most relatable emotion of all, right? <laughs> sure. Um, yeah. Freaking Twitter.com. Yeah. Right. Um, so the. I I almost just these last few pages put this book on par with House of X number two for me because Hickman is doing the thing, the the kind of other kind of retcon that I 
love, which is when writers take pre-existing ideas and concepts and then tweak them or give them more depth because pretty much everything in these, you know, six different types of societies are referencing things already in Marvel continuity and repurposing them. Um, and like specifically the stuff with the phalanx and the technarch, um, which I only have a tangential understanding of at this point, but it, it really seems like Hickman is kind of taking some old X-Men concepts and ideas and then, and really turning them on their head with some big implications for things that we've already seen. Um, particularly with characters like Cypher, um, and now I guess like Krakoa too, because it's indicated in the year 100 story that he has taken over Cypher's body. Um, because like, so I don't totally know what's up with Cypher now, but at one point he, like his con consciousness got merged with warlock who is a technarch so if you if you like go to the technarch section like it says technarchs exist as a singular node uh, called a called a catch or kvetch whatever um catch or kvetch is like the technarch home world like that's what it's always been and it's uh, controlled by uh, an intelligence called Magus, which that is Warlock's dad. But like here, Hickman's like, actually, there are many of these things. We've just only ever seen one because each Technarch believes it's the only Technarch in existence and they're invisible to all other Technarchs. Like, that's insane. Zach, your brain is so fucking big right now. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I just love it. I like when writers take old stories and old continuity and make it new, dust it off, clean it up. Cause that's, a, I mean, that's what John's always did with Green Lantern and, and a lot of the stories that he did. And I ate that, I ate that stuff up. And now Hickman is doing that here. Yeah. Well said, man. And, and, and good for you for reading those Phalanx Covenant <laughs> stories. Um, uh. This quick side note on that, uh, that book, that story is really weird because it's kind of divided up into three separate sections. And um, do you guys remember the culling in, <laughs> from, in New 52? From, oh, yes, yeah. absolutely. Do I remember the culling? Do I remember the culling? Yeah. Let's see. Teen Titans, Ravagers, and... So, so Ravagers came Boy. out of it. Yeah, Ravagers oh, okay. came out of it, which is an important point. It was it was Teen Titans, Superboy, and Legion Lost, actually. Oh, okay. Um, okay. Um, so, yeah, that was a crossover between those three books that featured a villain named Harvest that led to the creation of a young team of heroes called Ravagers. Yeah. The first section of Phalanx Covenant, uh, which is called Generation Next, um, written by Scott Lobdell, primarily featured um, a group of new young mutants fighting against a phalanx villain named Harvest <laughs> and, led to the, 
and led to the creation of a new team of youths called Generation Next. You love to see it. (laughs) (laughs) So bringing it it back around to DC. um, Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, that's something. Hey, you know what we you know what we didn't mention about Powers of Ten? Zorn, baby. Zorn. Yes. <laughs> Do we have to give a shout out to our, our pal the Zorn again Christian? James the Johnson. <laughs> <laughs> yep. <laughs> oh man, he's back. He's good again. Yeah. And again, you know, as great as Laraz was with House of X. I think the fact that R.B. Silva is able to flawlessly be telling the story in four different time periods mm-hmm. is Italian chef kiss emoji. Yeah. And really, for my money, just as good as Laraz, I think. Yes. I, I, don't, I don't have to pick a, a, a favorite between the two of them. Um, yeah. I... Oh man, Cyclops in this too. Does it does it need doing? Then it will be done. That was I, I, true believer. There is something <laughs> I think maybe going on with Cyclops that I, I would like to discuss more in the future. Yeah, I, I've seen some takes that I think are valid. That that uh, this Cyclops doesn't really feel like Cyclops, but I also just feel like there is not a good template for who Cyclops is really, right. at least in modern times. Um, I agree and I with actually, that. yeah. And I think this actually kind of tracks pretty well with kind of the Morrison Cyclops, at least from what I've read of new X-Men. Yeah. I, I think you're right. And I think there's Morrison uh, fingerprints all over this thing. Yeah. Really. Well, you know, like so, literal literal and spiritual. Can I tell you my theory? Sure, sure. In House of X number one, we see Charles in that garden where the mutants are being hatched. Oh I yeah. think he regrew Cyclops. So I don't know about this because I haven't really gotten to look or look into it very much, but so the Babble Spire thing. Uh, that they talk about, which is the thing that the the technarch, the 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 um, what's it called? The te- the techno organic virus produces a babble spire that will summon a technarch to remove, repurpose societal waste. Which, like, oh man, let's grow one now. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, um, which, like, oh, side tangent, but like. This is basically like the immune system of the universe, which is pretty much what he like an idea that he touched on a bit in his Avengers run and is also like Alice's Wildstorm stuff. I I love this kind of stuff, but um, there is a Babel Spire that is grown in Phalanx Covenant that looks I'd have to go back and check House of X number one, but it has like the pods that are in House of X number one. 
Interesting. Like pretty distinctly on the Babel Spire. Okay, so Morrison and Scott Labdell, the two writers you would totally expect to go together like chocolate and peanut butter. Although I will say, going back to look at this House of X issue, it does look much more like Krakoa based. But the the imagery, the like pods imagery is similar because the Babel Spire in that in Phallic's Covenant also grows new phalanxes. Okay. Um. So like, what if all the X Men are are machines? Oh, jeez. Oh, man. <laughs> uh, I love this. But let's assume, okay, let's assume that uh, that Cyclops is traditional Cyclops, just for a second. Sure. Yeah. I don't think that he's that out of character simply because we also haven't spent a ton of time with him yet. And so... I think like just like how we can't say whether I, I saw people saying like, oh, Wolverine's not really written like Wolverine in this. We've well, seen him for like three and a half panels. Yeah, exactly. He, he's had like four lines. And <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's going to be time to figure all that out. And I think I think if not by the end of this kind of double series that's going on right now once the book starts splitting out there's going to be a lot more i mean it's this is very that's that goes for like um people who are criticizing how clinical this is i think again that's like establishing the status quo clearly is going to take a lot of exposition and clinical uh timelining and whatnot right but it's been so well done and so badass that like I you just can't complain yet I don't think yeah I I think it's way too early to complain and um I mean not to say that people can't have problems with this but honestly sorry you can't have problems with this like, <laughs> I, the, the thought police has spoken this is good yep yep <laughs> Yep, no thought crimes. Thank you very much. No, I think I think I think there are legitimate criticisms for people who 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 would prefer a more personal story uh from Jump Street. But I think Hickman Hickman put it like this on Twitter recently, which is that like all of this that you're seeing in, in House of X and Powers of Ten is to get you to buy in to the retcon and i think when you approach it from that angle wait from which retcon the one he's doing the overall not okay. any specific okay. so not, not the moira not thing Mora okay. Mc, no okay. not not specifically moira not you know the, essentially the x-men relaunch you know to get you to buy into that and i think that's valid and i think i think I think still, even as as somebody who is a fan of the X-Men, I think you do bring things to your reading of this. Like, you bring things to the relationship between Charles and Moira that's external from this series. 
And that does, it's kind of like what we were talking about with Alfred and, and Tom King's Batman, right? You do bring things to the table that do some of the work. Um, and I think Hickman knows that, you know, and I think that, I think that's going to pull him through some of the more clinical aspects of this. It works for me anyway. I just love that each issue has totally reshaped my understanding of the issues that came before it without making me feel dumb. Like there are some times where I've read a book where like when you get to the big reveal, you think like, oh, I'm an idiot. I should have seen that coming. Mm -hmm. You can't have seen this stuff coming. It's not there. Each issue isn't trying to deceive you or trying to reveal a prior deception. It's like taking an eye test where each t issue just makes it more and more clear what you're looking at. Yeah. And yeah. I love that. Yeah. It, yeah. It, it definitely, I, yeah, I agree. It does not make you feel dumb. If anything, it makes your brain feel bigger because <laughs> you're like, Oh, I see this thing that I did not previously understand. And now I am better for it. Yeah. Yeah. That, that phalanx stuff. Oh, that really expanded my mind. <laughs> it really did. Oh, oh man, it was like it was like injecting marijuana. <laughs> it was like taking oh. the toke off a jazz cigarette. <laughs> That's right. Yep. Send all your mail to Brian at multiversitycomics.com. Oh man. So yeah. We're getting another issue of Powers of Ten this week. Mm -hmm. uh, this is one of the two times in the publishing schedule that books are coming out not in alternating order, but in uh, you know, doubling up. So we get uh, Powers of Ten this week. Then we get two House of X's in a row. And then it's alternating from there on out. Right, right. And the next big red highlighted issue i believe is house of x number five correct um which i do want to say it uh, that house of x number two was the first red highlighted issue and it was very big and very important but i i will say that powers of 10 number two felt no less big and important even though it wasn't highlighted so i i was a little bit worried that like okay we've had this big uh, reveal or what have you in House of X number two, and now we're kind of gonna get maybe uh, more by the numbers stuff, or it's gonna be kind of setting up for the next big reveal in in, in House of X number five. But this, it, yeah, Powers of Ten number two felt no less interesting or important. So I, uh, I, I will somewhat push back against that. I don't think any single thing from Powers of Ten number two will be as will be as uh, important going forward as the Moira thing from House of X two. Well, that I yeah, but I don't I'm, feel like this I'm, I'm not saying that it's I'm not saying it's a bad issue by any means. I just think that the Moira thing was just so big. That's yeah, yeah. that's fair, but I don't think that this felt. It didn't feel small, but it didn't feel... Right. Yeah. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, it, it it wasn't just like, oh, here are characters doing things. There was a lot of that. And it, I guess it actually kind of mostly was that, but 
I mean, the the phalanx stuff to me goes a very long way um, because really the rest of the issue kind of actually was just mostly set up. Yeah. It was good though. Um, the the scene, the year one scene in particular, I think was really really good. Yeah, I agree with that. All right. Um, anything else to add? No, no, no. All right. Uh, we should say, you know, we're not going to be doing this every week, but we are going to keep doing this through House of X and Powers of Ten. And then uh, I, I, can I talk about what our plan is after that? Sure. Yeah. So um, we are going to be recording a, a monthly segment for uh, our sister show, Make Mine Multiversity, where we are going to talk about the X-Men books going forward. This will give us reason to keep up with those books the way we keep up with all the DC stuff. And uh, I'm very excited to inhabit the X world a little bit, and certainly for the for the this will be the deepest dive I've taken to the X book, X books since middle school. So quite some time ago. So I, I'm very excited to be doing this. Wow, that's that's uh, uh, Lee and Kirby, right? <sighs> a simple man likes a simple jokes. So I understand. No, it was it was it, it the last X run I remember really buying was right when uh like let's call it ninety four ninety five. Ah, so so I, so I was seven. Yeah, I was uh twelve and thirteen. Okay. So yeah, I was five. <laughs> well, uh, I had a cool leather jacket, so fuck you guys. <laughs> All right, Fonzie. Just kidding. I did did not have a cool leather jacket. Um, Anyway, until next time, you can still find uh, two-thirds of us on Twitter. I am at Brian Needs a Nap. And I'm at Walker Fox. If you need to find Vince, you can find him just praising, liking, and retweeting on Farmers Only everything Tom King says. (laughs) Refarming. (laughs) Refarming? Crop ro- crop rotation. <laughs> 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 that Catwoman scene. <laughs> I just ignored what Tom King had put on the page and just imagine that Selena was singing That's Amore. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>